Welcome to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman, the podcast dedicated to helping you build the business of your dreams and live the life you always hoped for, with valuable and fun tips and info to make your life easier and more fun. And now, here's your host, a man who sprinkles metal shavings on his breakfast cereal just for fun, Jason Silverman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. I'm your host, Jason Silverman, and I'm thrilled to share some time with you today. As you know, I'm always on the hunt for interesting as well as super smart Real Deal guests, and i got to tell you, today's show is a home run. I want to introduce my listeners to somebody who's truly been there and done that, and I'm excited to pick her brain for your benefit today, and quite honestly, for my benefit as well. Now, for the folks who I work with in any of my coaching programs or through Powerful Words Character Development, All-Star Cheer Sites, or the Jason's Army Mastermind Group, you know how much I focus on the importance of creative thinking, right? Well, this show is going to help us get jump-started to do just that. So today, it's going to be my honor and privilege to share an amazing resource with you. You're going to love today's guest. She's got a ton of valuable information about what I consider to be one of those keystones between mediocrity and success. So strap yourself in. Today's show is going to be a blast. As I'm sure you already know, I'm committed to helping business owners just like you to become more successful, enjoy your career more, and in general, make your life significantly more fun. Let's face it, folks. We only get one ride on this merry-go-round. Let's make sure it's one hell of a ride. Alrighty, boys and girls, it is now that time. I want you to stop surfing Facebook, put away your phone, your tablet, your dog, your cat, your spouse, your child, anything that might possibly distract you from today's show. You're about to get some great and immediately implementable information, and I don't want you to miss even a second of it. So, before we officially get going, let me give you a little bit of background about our special guest expert today. Amy Whitaker is the author of Art Thinking from Harper Business, about how to carve out space for creative work in the midst of busy working life. With an MBA and an MFA, Amy's worked and played in both fields for more than a decade and developed a language for how to connect your creative and practical sides. Amy's also an assistant professor at NYU. Art thinking was called eloquent and inspiring by Adam Grant and fascinating by Walter Isaacson and was long listed as business book of the year by 800 CEO Raid. Amy, welcome to The Real Deal. I'm thrilled to have you today. Jason, thanks so much for having me on. I'm inspired and entertained by your introduction. I hope to live up to it. <laughs> your listeners. <laughs> I have no doubt you will. So listen, before uh, before we officially get going, um, for those who haven't had the opportunity of reading your book yet, which, by the way, folks, go get that book. Go read it, absorb it. <laughs> go, uh, go buy it from 400 of your closest friends while you're at it. Now, do me a favor. Share your story with our listeners. You know, what are you passionate about? What makes you tick? Who is Amy Whitaker? Well, that is such a great question to be asked in the middle of February. Um, the, uh, the story that's told in the very beginning of the book is that I'm from the South, and my father was a scientist, and my mother is an English professor. And someone asked him once how he got along being in such different fields, and he said that he was in the business of saving lives, but she was in the business of making lives worth saving. And the thing I always loved about that is that they actually did the opposite. He helped people with uh, multiple sclerosis and kind of quality of life issues, headaches. And she helped people with what I consider to be a basic survival skill of writing in complete sentences. And so um, kind of what makes me tick is thinking about the intersections of things. And um, being someone who grew up 
drawing and being an artist, but also had a really practical side. And I hope this is relatable to your listeners. I think there's this idea we all have, um, you know, that there's a huge distinction between the business side and the artistic or creative side. And that even if I say art, I mean something really esoteric in a museum or I mean a famous Van Gogh painting. Um, and what really excites me about the saving lives versus making lives worth saving is thinking about how our creative selves and our practical selves fit together and how much hopeful possibility there is in carving out space for the creative. That is so cool. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually... I'm so excited about this because, uh, you know, I, I have always been somebody who loved art. Um, I have zero, zero, actually less than zero, uh, talent, um, <laughs> artistically speaking. Um, all of my staff knows that I'm artistically, graphically, um, challenged is the best way to say, it. but I love it. And I always looked at, well, I'm good at the business side. Um, I could never, I could never be good at that stuff. Um, and I never really looked at it. So like, I'm really excited to see, you know, where the intersection is. Um, yeah. you know, what's funny is I, I meet a lot of people who are the way you're describing yourself. They say something like, Oh, I couldn't possibly draw a stick figure. And I'm always so skeptical because I know so many people like that who are actually deeply, deeply creative people. They're very, very resourceful and imaginative and curious. And so I, I'm, I am onto your game. <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, you know, I'm definitely curious. So I think no, that, that's, uh, that's um, really related to the idea of art in the book is really art as a process. So I was one of those kids who loved to draw kind of unselfconsciously. And I know people who are more gifted draftsmen than, than I was, but I, I can draw. I'm very rusty. Um, my business editor has actually invited me to do line drawings for the book, so I did the illustrations myself. But the idea of art is really the process. And um, I think about it doing the drawings for the book. There are a couple of drawings where while I was making them, I was thinking, oh, this is going great. This is a really nice drawing. And then I get to the end and I can hardly look at them. Like they, I almost cringed. Uh, and there are, there are a couple of drawings. There's, there's one in particular that's a drawing of this art project called the Wrapped Reichstag, where uh, these two artists, Christo and Jean-Claude, a married couple, wrapped the entire German parliament building in Berlin in a million square feet of fabric. And I was trying to draw it. It's a really hard thing to draw because it's a building and it's covered in fabric and tied up. Um, and I, I had that sensation in the middle of drawing it as if I had spilled water on a flat desk and I was trying to contain the water, <laughs> and I, I, which is to say not in control in any way, but just kind of there and present. And it's probably one of my favorite drawings in the book. So I think that that process of art is really what we're talking about. Well, say, say more about that because, you know, obviously there's an art thinking process, right? How, how would you describe you know, the process itself and, you know, what the steps are. Yeah. So the process of art thinking is really about how to combine the mindsets of art and the tools of business. It's how to be your most creative, original self and your practical, no nonsense, rational self at the same time. So it originates in this single idea, which is that if you're making a work of art in any field, in your everyday life, in your work, you know, I, I consider entrepreneurship to be very much an art practice. 
Hmm. You're not going from point A to point B, you're inventing point B. So you're not completing a task, you're moving forward without a template. And this is really hard to do. We're surrounded by templates. There are lots of them that are very, very useful. I'm glad I know how to do my morning commute, etc. But the idea of the book is how to make space to explore open-endedly and to ask big questions, whether you know that you can answer them or not. So you're, you know, you're, you're running a business, you, you have a job, you have a busy personal life. Um, but there are ways to carve out space in the middle of that to experiment and explore. And, and those small investments in exploration often really pay off. So the, the free work in the book um, starts with the mindsets of art, of kind of zooming out to see the whole picture, um, accepting that when you're doing something creative, you're in the weeds, and you don't have a lot of visibility on um, the outcome. Whereas, you know, you see other people's creative projects after the fact when they've already made them. Uh, and then kind of asking what in the book are called lighthouse questions. Um, the thing that you are going toward that's your really your mission or values or the contribution you want to make. Um, and then from there, it gets into some of the tools of business. So how to think in portfolios. Um, both income portfolios and investment portfolios so that you manage downside risk, but you also manage upside risk, that if you create value, you own a piece of what you create. And then how to think about business itself as a creative design medium, how to build interesting business models and think about capitalism as, a, you know, like any artistic medium, as something that has certain properties, which can be strengths and limitations and how to build with those. And then really how to connect the dots. The, the closing question of the book, which was an opening question of the whole process of writing for me was, you know, if Leonardo da Vinci were alive today, what would he be doing? And I'm not sure he'd be an artist. And I actually think he wouldn't be one person um, because we're so overwhelmed with information uh, at the moment. So kind of how to connect with other people and build things across fields. Um, so that's kind of the, the arc of framework. And it's divided into seven steps with a number of habits and tools that you can use for each one. That's so cool. One, one of the things I've got here is <clears throat> you talked about inventing point B. Mm -hmm. Now, that really sticks pretty hard in, in, in my mind because I'm looking at thinking, you know, I know I generally like to plan everything out, but you're right. I don't necessarily know what that next step's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, like, how... Now that I'm thinking about it, I guess drawing a picture or painting or, or, or doing a sculptures, I guess it really is the exact same thing. Yeah. So, so um, Jason, when we were talking a little before we went live, um, we were talking about kind of one or two really specific things that your listeners can do this week to get started. So let me just go ahead and get that out of the way. Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a story of what I mean by inventing point B as a, as a setup. So the two, the two skills are developing a habit of studio time and also designating a grace period. And I'll tell you what I mean. So um, there are many people in the book, um, like almost like a dinner party or a group of people you get to put into a scrapbook, um, whose stories I'm, I'm really personally inspired by. And one of them is Roger Bannister, who is the first person to run a mile in under four minutes. So May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister at Ifley Road Track in Oxford, England, 
ran a mile in three minutes, 57.4 seconds. And there are many parts of the story that I, I really love. And you can Google, there's a video of it. If you ever need a five minute break that totally resets you, I would watch this video. It's just gorgeous. It's black and white. It actually uh, makes me cry when I watch it. Um, and the thing that makes me cry, well, there are a few things, but one of them is that Bannister's not running alone. He's being paced by two of his friends who are amazing runners in their own right. One of them went on to co-found the London Marathon and the other became a world record holder in the three mile distance the same year. Um, and the second thing is that they weren't professional runners. They were gentlemen, amateur, amateurs in the, the kind of term in Britain at the time. So Bannister himself was training to be a neurologist and he had it timed exactly that he could leave the hospital on his lunch break, get to the track, run his workout, clean up, get a sandwich, get back and all, all in an hour. And the, um, the part of the story that I really love is that, um, you know, you have to imagine, and this is a little bit of the in the weeds idea. You have to imagine that it seems ob more obvious now that you can run a mile in under four minutes because the world record since 1999 has been three minutes and 46 seconds. But at the time, people really thought it was impossible. They thought it was a law of nature because the world record had stood at, I think, 4.14 or 4.16 seconds for about, 1.14 for about nine years. And, um, there's this part, the part that makes me cry in the video is where you see Bannister running the last lap on his own, unpaced, and he's giving it absolutely everything he has before he knows if he'll succeed or fail. He, he's been asked by a French journalist if he knows what, whether he will die trying. And he says, no, I, I don't know whether I will die trying and I don't know if I, if I will be able to do it. And that, that idea of kind of going all in, this moral courage and belief in a sense of possibility uh, is really the essence of a inventing point B question. That he's trying to do something, he doesn't know if it's possible or not, he's giving it what he has, he's investing the time he has to lose, and he's he's doing it in a time of his life when he can. So um, a couple of the habits that come up in that, the idea that Bannister trained on his lunch break is a way of setting studio time. That you look at your life and you think about how much time you can put towards something and you commit that time. It's a little bit like a generalized form of 20% time, the Google policy. Um, and the other is that you set a grace period. So I certainly experienced this, Jason. I wonder if you do too, where there's something that's really important to you. And so it manifests in your life with a degree of urgency, which is really a proxy for its importance. And so you're like, oh my God, I have to solve this right now. Uh, and what I find is that most of the time you have to solve it soon-ish, but not right now. And figuring out what that margin is, is a form of setting a grace period. So you might have to figure out a new business direction or a revenue source or um, a, you know, a relationship with a challenging client or whatever it is. And you you give yourself a grace period. You're like, yeah, I definitely have to figure that out, but not until next Friday or not for a year. Because Bannister actually gave himself two years to beat the mile barrier. He, he ran in the Helsinki Olympics in July of 1952 and was incredibly disappointed, kind of devastated by not meddling. And he said, I will, 
I'll try for two years and then I'll give it up. And he, May 1954, so not quite two years later, uh, broke the barrier. And the, the last part of the story, the inventing point B part, is that Bannister only held the record for 45 days before someone ran faster than him. So overnight, he was a sporting hero internationally. And then someone else saw that it was possible and bested his effort. So this idea of art is really what it is to take the risk on something new and maybe not to do that with your entire life, but to carve out habits to do it in part of your life. And um, because those are the things that are transformational that create the point B world. Um, and they're ways of not just kind of competing well at the game, but um, setting up the game itself. That is, thank you, by the way. Um, that that story is, is fabulous. Um, I've never actually heard it at that level. Um, you know, after go being at a million different conferences, you know, we always hear about, you know, breaking the record and going through and, but I've, I've never actually heard that part of the story and that I think the detail is, is the important stuff. Yeah. And it, I think it's very easy to give people mythic status after they accomplish something remarkable. And I always have to remind myself that Bannister was um, as it says in the book, more Clark Kent than Superman at the time that he did it. You know, he's a single guy. He lives in a basement flat in a nice but not fancy neighborhood. He's cooking for himself. He's eating pickled herring for protein. And he's, you know, he's just kind of living his life. And there, there's a point in reading about Bannister, who I also corresponded with, uh, he, um, at, at a different point in his career, wearing his doctor hat, he gave a stress test to Sir Edmund Hillary, who had summited uh, Everest, first man to summit Everest with uh, Tenzing Norgay. And um, Bannister looked at his medical um, kind of fundamentals and, and basically said, I don't know how he did it. You know, essentially that he was a mere mortal. And I think this is so easy to forget because, you know, when you're when you're the person who's trying to invent point B, you're so aware of the vulnerability and the flaws and the risk. It, it's that feeling I always have of, you know, am I the only person who the bumper of my car is held on with duct tape? And <laughs> I am, but that, that feeling is the feeling of being in the weeds. And so, you know, you need a lot of structure um, to support that, to support that open space. And having a lighthouse question, you know, having a sense of studio time habits and grace period. And then also, because our society is structured so strongly as a market economy, having a lot of tools of business, thinking like a free market economist to the extent it really supports your creative work. Um, and so that all kind of comes into play. That makes sense. You know, I, so I have a, I have a question that, you know, again, more from my business background, you know, so I work in a performance driven culture, right? You know, we're always go, 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 you know, how can I make, and it, how can I truly take the time to make space for creative work? Yeah, no, I, I think this is the question because one of the uneasy relationships between creativity and business is that it's very hard to pay for research and development. It's much easier to get paid for what you already know how to do and much harder to get paid to learn or to figure something out. So I think the answer, uh, there, there are two main parts to it. And one is to think like an investor and a risk manager to acknowledge that these are risks because you are exploring things that are unknown, but to structure them really well as if you are a portfolio manager. So to 
to figure out what part of your portfolio of time and energy and money you can invest in something. And it might be really small. Um, when, when I used to work in a hedge fund and, uh, or an investment management firm, which is what hedge funds call themselves. Uh, but, um, you know, they're incredibly sophisticated investors and they, they might have had most of their, their wealth or their investment in much more stable, um, I don't, I mean, this was a stable hedge fund, but they, they diversify. We diversify our exposures. And I think in a performance driven culture, you have to diversify your exposure. And then you also have to develop language, um, to be able to give voice to the gradations and nuances of the space between creativity and commerce. I mean, you, you have to be able to, you know, carve out space for the pure pilot, but also to, to, acknowledge kind of how far things are along and what's working and not working. And a lot of that is a question of corporate culture. One of my favorite um, stories or analogies in the book is um, about this uh, period in my own life after I went to business school and art school and worked in the investment firm where I was freelancing. And I said to myself one day, you know, I have all these amazing projects, but it's like all throw pillows and no couch, <laughs> like a big beige structure to put under this kind of economically speaking for my own security. And I think security is really important for experimentation. It's like, um, you know, the steadier the base, the greater the cantilever. Uh, so it's not, it's not to be dismissed, um, making sure that your kind of financial life allows you to feel comfortable taking risks uh, well and exploring. So the, the thing that's so interesting about the couch and the throw pillows, and I, I did get a couch. I started working full-time as a professor and then um, kind of investing myself in side projects for a period of time. Um, but I was looking at Leonardo da Vinci's life story, and he had this period from 1503 to 1507 that was very couch and throw pillows. So the couch was a big public commission he had in the Palazzo Vecchio to depict this iconic battle of Anghiari, lots of horses and men in a big jumble, sort of like, like a, a rugby scrum, but horses and men of the Renaissance. And his side project, his throw pillow, was the Mona Lisa, this painting a portrait of an Italian nobleman's wife. And the thing that's remarkable is that the Battle of Anghiari no longer survives. You know, it paid for his life. It gave him a studio and a wage. Um, but the side project is the thing that we still have. And so sometimes I think in many stories you see that the throw pillow becomes the next couch. And that's because someone has carved out a small amount of space to work on it at the same time. So I, to answer your question directly, you know, when you have performance metrics, that's great. But you have to then um, carve out a small amount of space that's either free of performance metrics or is evaluated in different ways um, on process and not outcome or qualitatively. And you can afford to do that if you scale it well uh, with regard to your more consistent sources of income. Um, there, there are a number of frameworks in the book, including an adaptation of the Boston Consulting Group's growth share matrix to kind of help people think through that in your personal life and in your business. Fabulous. 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 No, I mean, as far as brass tacks are concerned, right? There's so much going on in the world, politics. I mean, we've got a new <laughs> leadership structure, so to speak, uh, economics, terrorist <laughs> threats, you know, 
How at this point do you see art as more than just a, a nice to have? And again, I say this not just for my listeners, but selfishly speaking, you know, I've got young kids. I got a six and seven year old. So I know the importance of the arts. Um, how, from an expert's perspective, how do you see it as more than just nice to have? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think about this stuff a lot. Um, and I think the arts is part of the saving lives versus making lives worth saving sort of thinking where it's really easy to think that it's a leisure and nice to have. I remember coming out of college, I was invited to interview for a fellowship. I uh, also studied political science and I had, um, you know, been like a student government geek and done some other stuff that it kind of qualified me to be considered. Uh, and I remember watching this room full of, you know, very distinguished attorneys and business people interview me and um, grapple with, with art. And I, I actually wrote them a letter afterward that was like, if you ever have future candidates who are artists, here's some questions you should, you can ask them. And also if God forbid any of your children decide to go into the arts, here's some ways you can think about it. Because I, I think that um, the idea that art is a nice to have is really a bias in perception with regard to time. I mean, art is a nice to have relative to the US constitution or the formation of a democracy. But at the time the democracy was formed in 1776, it was an art project. So I think that there, that's the tension. The tension is that you're in the established point A world thinking about the invention of point B. And I think it's particularly salient because there's so much change afoot, uh, not even just in the United States, but internationally um, with various political movements that are you know, seen as a rise of uh, populism and nationalism and economic consequences of that, you know, best encapsulated in the Brexit or some of the recent immigration policy. And I think, you know, we're, we're looking at um, not just discussions about differences in partisan politics, but also experimentations with the structure of governance itself, with executive actions and filling a Supreme Court seat on such a time delay. And, um, you know, my politics may be apparent through how I'm speaking. Um, and I say that with the utmost respect to listeners of any political persuasion. Um, I think that art is really a proxy for independent thinking and that independent thinking is the greatest lever of power in any democracy. So I don't think it matters what people think so much as that they think and that they continue to think. And so to me, that way of framing art could not be more important because it's the way that we all continue to build the world that we live in, in very large and small ways and continue to stay in conversation with each other. I'm from the South originally, and I love nothing more than talking politics with people I don't agree with. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, whether, whether that's, uh, you know, having to explain why I think public education is, is good uh, to someone who's extremely, extremely libertarian or, and learning from them too. Or um, I, I, I tried to find common ground once with a, a cousin of mine who's since passed away. Um, uh, uh, she didn't believe in the separation of church and state, um, which is a little bit hard. But but we did both agree that occasionally George W. Bush was a little bit corny. So I was like, all right, that's a starting point. But I, I think, you know, the, um, the, the idea of art as something on the side that's about making pretty pictures or um, kind of arts and crafts and puppets and scrapbooks, it really misses the point um, 
And, and I say this with all seriousness, when you, when you look at the economy and you look at how many jobs are moving away from the middle of the country and how to think meaningfully and creatively about fixing that um, in substantive and interesting ways, you know, that, that is artistic territory. It's, it doesn't require a glue gun and a bedazzler, limit. But, um, but that's the stuff that really matters because I think the idea of moving back into the past is a fallacy. Economics itself as a system is predicated on forward progress. And so like it or not, we're all kind of kicked out of the nest already. And that this independent thinking, this ability to be in conversation creatively and collaboratively and resourcefully um, is and respectfully is, uh, is really um, you know, actually like pretty close to the subject matter of the book. That's fabulous. That's absolutely fabulous. What would you say, I mean, overall from, you know, within the book, um, what would you say is your number one favorite concept? <laughs> you know, it might be the couch and the throat pillows, which <laughs> I, I uh, already, <laughs> already got to mention. Um, you know, the, the, um, the one that resonates the most, I think for people is the idea of being in the weeds because it's so emotional and the, the story of being in the weeds in the book is the story of Harper Lee uh, and her process of writing To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's there's really such a, I hinted at it before, but there's such a bias in perception where we see creative projects after the fact, after people have created them, but we experience making them, you know, in the before picture when we're in the weeds and everything is messy. So if you look at Harper Lee's after picture, the kind of aerial view of her life story, To Kill a Mockingbird sold 40 million copies. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It became a much celebrated film with Gregory Peck. It changed the national conversation on race. If you look at it from her perspective when she wrote it, she moved to New York to New York as a college and law school dropout and spent six years working day in, day out as a reservations agent for the airlines. And the only way she was able to really write the book, and this is the R&D question of how to fund something, is some friends of hers gave her a year's salary for Christmas. She wanted to go home to be with her family. Wow. And she spent Christmas with them instead, and they... They gave it to her, and even still, it was hard enough writing that book that she once threw the manuscript out the window, called her editor. Her editor was like, yeah, put on your boots and go get it out of the snowdrift. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's just hard. Being being in progress is hard. And um, I often asked people while I was writing what they thought Leonardo da Vinci would be doing if he were alive today. You know, did they think he'd be an artist or, like, an Elon Musk, Steve Jobs Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man kind of character or what? And the, the, the answer that really stuck with me the most was um, a, a video teacher of, of mine. I, I would sometimes take classes as my own studio time practice um, because it's important to feel like an idiot as an adult. <laughs> so it's a good artistic practice. That um, I asked him what he thought Leonardo would be doing if he were alive today. And he said, you know, I think he'd just be trying to figure stuff out. And that to me is very close to what it is to be in the weeds is, is that feeling of just trying to figure stuff out. So the more that the book lives in the world and the more that I get to be in conversation with people about it, the more I think creativity is sometimes a, an overused concept. It's hard for us to think of the full freight and possibility of that word because we hear it so much. And that so much of curiosity is 
is really what creativity is. It's the figuring stuff out, the being curious and exploring um, that, that's the engine of creativity. Totally makes sense. Do you feel like everybody at their depth is an artist? Um, I do. Not everyone agrees with me about that, but I really do. I, I find myself reading a lot of articles about automation, drones, delivery, self-driving cars. And I think that um, creativity is really, you know, that like if, if it's opposable thumbs that separate us from a lot of different animal species, I think it's creativity that separates us from artificial intelligence and robot automation. And so I take it really seriously. And I think a lot about the cultures of the workplace and how much pressure there is to kind of look like you've got it together. Um, you know, that your bumper is not held on with duct tape. And I think that actually if we find ways to kind of risk vulnerability in inappropriate ways, but if we find ways to, to take those risks, we'll find that other people feel the same way and that there's um, a tremendous amount of creative potential in kind of showing up with your artist self, um, that trusting that you have a contribution to make that's yours to make and yours alone um, maybe in a group with other people, but that you have some essence to, to bring to things. Um, I, I think it makes people happier and more grounded and um, more present and enjoying of our lives. And it also um, creates a tremendous amount of, of potential um, to create value, to change the world, um, to make a difference, all of that. That's that's a brilliant answer, actually. All right. It's time for our resource of the week. Tell me this, Amy, how can my listeners find out more about you and uh, more about your book and, and, and really how you've gone to how you're changing the world? Well, thank you for asking, Jason. Uh, my website is amywhit, dot com, and there are a lot of resources on there. Um, and links to get the book and to read it. I'm, I'm going to post some worksheets to the website soon. I've been getting to give a lot of hands-on workshops in corporations and universities and other venues. And so I'm going to put some of that material on the website too, so that if you're reading the book, you have some, some sheets to kind of go through and, and make notes to yourself and put things into practice. Um, I'm also just the, at the Amy Witt on Twitter. We'd love to hear from anyone. There's a contact form on my website. Uh, I, I keep wanting to hear someone uh, take on a studio time habit that originates in uh, skipping a meeting. If there's a, it happens every week and you can go every other week, if you do something like that, please let me know. I, I'm really curious. You heard it here, folks. All right, www.amywhit.com, and you can find her on Twitter at TheAmyWit. All right. Amy, tell me this. I always like to end my podcast with one telling question. So if you could give business owners just one solid piece of advice that you feel would either help their business or more importantly, to help them live a better life, what would that piece of advice be? Well, you know, I'm, can I can I give two related pieces of advice in, in sure. representation of the art and business sides of the book? Sure. On the business side, uh, own things. Think in terms of ownership because that's the way to align price and value. Own pieces of what you create if you create them at early enough stages that their their true value is not yet known. Um, so own things. And then I would say to them what I, I think is the highest compliment you can pay any artist, which is you're not crazy, carry on. 
um, that <laughs> I remember my teacher in art school when I was getting my MFA used to say that uh, one of his favorite parts of his job was watching people in the art studio uh, who had been wrapped in barbed wire for weeks on end suddenly emerge into a field of lilies. And I think that's so true of the art process that you can work and work and work. And sometimes there's a level of grace or alchemy um, to beautiful outcomes happening when you are not expecting them. Um, and that, that, that can be the, uh, the uneven and lumpy and uncertain rewards of creative work. So I, I wish those two things for your, your readers, um, carrying on in creative endeavors and owning parts of what they create for your listeners. <laughs> your readers. No, my readers as well. All right, Amy, thank you so much for joining me. And I know how busy your schedule is, so it, it, it truly means the world to me that you share some of your time and, and some of this amazing wisdom with us. This has been fabulous. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. I wish everyone a great day wherever you are, and um, I am very honored to get to connect with you. Folks, that's all the time we've got today. Thanks so much for tuning into The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. For more info about private coaching or to see if you'd benefit from one of my mastermind groups, go ahead and visit me over at www.jasonmsilverman.com. I look forward to helping you achieve the success that you truly deserve. Until next time, let me leave you with this. Get out there and be the real deal. Set a goal, make a plan, work like hell towards it, and achieve the success that's waiting for you. Now's the time. Get out there and make it happen. This has been Jason Silverman, and I hope you have a spectacular week. You've been listening to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. To access the great resources mentioned in the show and for information on coaching and mastermind group opportunities with Jason, please visit jasonmsilverman.com.